0: Well, good morning, and welcome back to our Auditorium Sunday School class. Uh, Not long ago, I began this series entitled, A Pattern for Disciples to Pray. And today, we want to explore Lesson 3. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 10 is our text, and I want to invite you to follow along. As I read for us to set the, uh, set the parameters, uh, reading verses 9 and 10 from Matthew chapter 6 this morning. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, let's get started this morning by asking ourselves a simple question. This will help those of you who have not been here for the series to get up to speed with where we are in this series. Why do I need a study in the Lord's Prayer? It's important for me to ask myself that question, and I assume the same is true for you. My answer to the question is simply this. Because it's important for all of us to ponder whether God is satisfied with the way I pray. Furthermore, am I satisfied with the way I pray? We're reminded of what Jesus gave his disciples here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, as a pattern for prayer. But think with me for just a moment. Keep in mind, internationally, in the broad realm of Christendom, the Lord's Prayer is uttered millions upon millions of times by billions of people all over the world. And if you use this prayer as a recitation, have you satisfied God with your prayer life? Personally, I don't think so. You might disagree with me, and that's fine. However, I believe God desires our dialogue and not simply our recitation. And I base that on verse 7. Where the Bible says in Matthew 6, 7, But when you pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do. Now, let's break verse 10, our text, down into two simple parts. We want to deal with the kingdom as well as the subject of the will of God. Thy kingdom come are the first three words found in verse 10. And I want us to focus our attention on the word kingdom. In Greek, it's basileia. You don't need to know that to get to heaven. It's just a little bit of extra, okay? But that Greek term, basileia, has three focuses. Sovereignty, royal power, as well as dominion. Sovereignty, royal power, and dominion. Let's think about kingdom. Apart from science, and when I say apart from science, I'm thinking of the animal kingdom. Apart from science, we would normally think of that word kingdom in terms of a region or territory, landmass. For example, the British kingdom comes to my mind. But in this case, the emphasis is upon rain. Not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N, reign, rule. John MacArthur writes, and I quote, Basileia does not refer primarily to a geographical territory, but to sovereignty and dominion. Those three words I mentioned earlier. We're praying for God's rule through Christ's enthronement to come. In other words, when we read, thy kingdom come, What should come to our minds is what John said in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Where the Bible says, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And the end of Revelation 20 verse 4 says, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now when's that? The millennial reign of Christ on earth. So when we talk about that kingdom come, it's not an indirect effort. To create a more godly society on earth through human effort. After the millennium is completed, by the way. Christ's earthly kingdom is going to blend into God's eternal kingdom. And there's going to be no distinction between his rule on earth and his rule in heaven. Let's think about that word kingdom some more. It suggests, the word kingdom suggests a king. And the scriptures teach that God possesses absolute authority and rules as a king. I share these two verses. Psalm chapter 10, verse 16. The Bible says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Then Psalm 103, verse 19. I want to focus on three concepts, but let me quote the verse first. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. If you're not looking at it, let me read it again, and then I'll identify those three concepts in this verse. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Now, as king, God has authority. That's revealed through the word throne. The Lord has prepared his throne. As king, God has authority. God also has a realm. The heavens are mentioned in verse 19. And as a king, God has subjects. And the word all refers to his subjects in Psalm 103, verse 19. Time for an application. I do that by asking this question. How would you define the word kingdom of God? The fact is, that's not very easy to do. Apparently, Jesus avoided providing a simple definition for us. However, a liberal scholar I have quoted earlier, William Barclay, in the previous two lessons, I'll quote again. William Barclay gives significant insight when he points to parallelism within a text of Scripture. Barclay explained the Hebrew pattern of poetry in which the second second line explains the preceding line and amplifies and defines what is read earlier. And that pattern can be found all throughout the book of Psalms. The Lord's Prayer provides the perfect definition of the kingdom of God in this very way. Notice verse 10 of our text. Thy kingdom come is defined by the following phrase, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the kingdom of God is a society upon earth where God's will is perfectly done as it is above in heaven. So, can I show this to you anywhere else we can find this in scripture? Absolutely. In fact, we can find it in the book of Matthew, one chapter forward. Verse 21, we're familiar with the verse. Why don't you notice that? It's just a page over where we read, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Question, do we really want the kingdom of God to come? You know, the kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen, demands submission to the will of God. It demands submission of my heart, my life. And it is only when each one of us makes that personal decision of submission that the kingdom of God comes. It's important to understand that throughout Christianity, theologians have differed in their perspective, their persuasion of this concept, that kingdom come. And I grant that. Let me lay it out for you. Some interpret it as the second coming of Christ. I fall into that category. But others, such as postmillennialists, viewed the kingdom as a call to social action, the social gospel. Or a mandate to bring the kingdom through good works to earth. And then finally, there are some who argue it is spiritually fulfilled by saving the lost. Reaching lost souls with the gospel. I want to turn to Charles Feinberg. Charles Feinberg, uh, Dallas theologian, uh, professor at Dallas Seminary. Most well known for his commentary on the Minor Prophets. But Charles Feinberg said this regarding these terms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. He, He shares that they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Matthew primarily uses the term kingdom of heaven because he was writing to the Jews who had that peculiar reference for the name of God and would refrain from saying the word God. Mark and Luke, on the other hand, were writing to Gentiles, and so they used the term the kingdom of God. I want to turn to a favorite commentator of mine, R. Kent Hughes. From him I gathered the information I've shared with you on the screen that the kingdom as a concept was a major theme of Jesus' preaching. And statistically, here's what we find. Kingdom occurs 49 times in Matthew 16 times in Mark, 38 times in Luke, and if you add them up, that's 103 times in just those three Gospels alone. Here's what Jesus said before the cross. In other words, before going to Calvary, I quote the Lord, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that in Luke 4.43. Now if we jump past the cross, past the empty tomb, past the resurrection, and turn to the book of Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Here's what we find before Jesus' ascension. Acts 1, 3, speaking of Jesus. He was seen of them, seen of the disciples for 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting to think That when Jesus came in the first advent, next slide please, when Jesus came in the first advent, he brought the kingdom of God within himself. Let me share this verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you might want to turn back there. And here's where Jesus presented the kingdom in himself. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea of the kingdom of heaven being at hand is the fact that Jesus had been born. Messiah had come to earth, and indeed, the kingdom was contained within him. He personified the kingdom because he fully executed the will of God the Father here on earth. In turn, it was the Father's plan to bring other men and women into conformity to the Father's will. And that's the essence of this teaching Those in God's kingdom will strive to do God's will here on earth. I want to turn back to our Kent Hughes again. Because Kent Hughes cites four examples of how the message of the kingdom becomes personal for you and me. So here's where the rubber meets the road for you and I. And why this is important to us. How we can see this in our lives as we go about living the Christian life. We see it in the area of repentance, commitment, supreme pursuit, and profound dependence. Let me look at all four. First of all, let's talk about repentance for just a moment and think together. When you and I think about our personal wills, my will wants to go its own way. How do you know that, Brother Pat? Because Isaiah shared this truth in that golden gospel of Isaiah 53, where the Bible says, all we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So that's who you are. You have a straying will, and so do I. And that's why we need repentance. Number two, commitment. Commitment. Jesus highlighted this in Luke 9, 62, where we read that all-familiar verse. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We need a commitment as well as a repentance. Thirdly, a supreme pursuit. Those, this we learn in Matthew 6, 33. Where the Bible says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added unto you. So from that, we should gather the fact that, you know, praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is not a do-nothing, armchair type of Christianity. It needs a passionate pursuit. And finally, a profound dependence. Pursuing the will of God requires a profound dependence. Think of the Beatitudes, number one, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So the beggarly poor in spirit have come to the end of themselves, and they've realized they have a profound need to depend upon God alone. One more thought before I leave this to go to the second half of Matthew 6.10. You know, as I sat, prepared, pondered this study, I had to ask myself this question. What ultimately brings man face-to-face with God's eternal kingdom? What do you think? Because I don't know about you, but I think normal human beings can go about their daily life and not give God too much thought. Whether you're working in the factory, working on the base, working at an engineer's desk, you've got things to do. But you know what brings us 360 to face God's eternal kingdom without hesitation? Two things. Death and tragedy. Both my own death as well as when I lose those I love. Case in point, Jennifer Willis, a fellow missionary wife. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So inevitably, death brings man face to face with God's kingdom. But so does tragedy. When we cannot fix, when we cannot fathom the circumstances behind the events of our life, Whether it's dealing with children, a health issue, a struggle anywhere, these things are what drive a man, a woman to God. And we need to thank God for them. Now, thy will be done. We've talked about thy kingdom come. We want to get into the next part of the lesson thy will be done. The classic questions are what is God's will? And can God's will be known? You know, it's common knowledge that millions of people repeat this prayer, this phrase, daily without having the faintest idea what God's will is, or whether it's personal. And furthermore, Even if they think in terms of this part of the prayer being personal, they have no intention of doing God's will, even if they knew what God's will was. And I'm talking about the vast realm of Christendom, whether you're reciting it as part of the rosary or whether you're sitting in a sanctuary in a Lutheran or Presbyterian church, what have you. But this gives us all the more reason to emphasize the point Jesus was making about prayers of vain repetition, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 7. Let me turn to a commentator long, long gone and with the Lord, John brought us. You ask, who's John brought us? John brought us lived in the 1800s. He was an American Baptist pastor. He was a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Charles Spurgeon called John Broadus the greatest of living preachers. Church historian A. Henry Newman once said, Broadus was perhaps the greatest man the Baptists have produced. So I'm quoting someone who was well-respected and well-known in the 1800s. And John Broadus established three senses of this term, will. I have Broadus's commentary on my shelves, and so I've harvested this thought from there. One, God's will of purpose. So three aspects of this term, will, beginning with God's will of purpose. What are we talking about God's will of purpose there? What does that mean? Well, God's will always comes to pass in heaven, on earth, and in hell. That's God's will of purpose. Nothing can thwart it. It'll always come to pass in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Number two, God's will of desire. God's will of desire, it does not always come to pass on heaven, as it does or on earth as it does in heaven let me give three examples of that first of all jesus wished for the jewish people which is referred to as jerusalem jesus wished for jerusalem to be saved think of this verse luke 13:34 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen to gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. So that's an example of how God's will does not always come to pass on earth as it does in heaven. Another example of that same thought, Jesus does not wish that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us word not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance that's the will of God too isn't it And then thirdly Jesus wishes all to be saved 1 Timothy 2:4 Who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth so that's God's will of desire It does not always come to pass on earth as it does in heaven. And then thirdly and finally, God's will of command. This concept of God's will of command is often and flagrantly disobeyed. Do you know what Psalm 40 verse 8 says? Psalm 40 verse 8. I delight to do thy will. O my God. And you know there are a lot of people who cannot say that from the heart because they have no desire, they have no delight or interest in doing the will of God. Martin Luther made this point about this phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he said this, Martin Luther speaking, this is a fearful prayer. If people realized what they were praying, their words would get stuck in their throat. thy will be done. I mentioned earlier, and I want to emphasize and draw to your attention now this truth. This simple phrase, thy will be done, is a matter of surrender as well as submission. Our Kent Hughes said this, praying this phrase, thy will be done, involves inviting God to conquer us. When we pray this, we're literally asking God to do what is necessary to make his will prevail in our lives. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, take me, break me, mold me, make me into what you'd have me to be. For some people, to pray like that would be absolutely terrifying. But you know there's a value in it. The value is it delivers us from ourselves. And it's an attitude that is foundational to the heart of true prayer. I want to tell you a story. 1982, Boulder, Colorado, I went out for Neighborhood Bible Time. That summer, Ken Endine was there. Your son-in-law was there, Dan Unruh. And we all had to meet with Brother Holmsher privately. And, you know, before we went out on the circuit to our churches to preach, Brother Holmsher called me into his office. He said, Brother Pat, let's kneel down here on the couch, next to the couch. And Brother Holmsher was there, and I was there. And he said, Brother Pat, you pray. And I was pouring my heart out to God, and in my prayer I was saying, God, whatever it takes a summer, break me of my pride. And all of a sudden, Brother Holmsher's arm went over my shoulder like this and he grabbed me and he squeezed me. He said, Brother Pat, don't pray that way. Don't pray that way, son. He didn't want anything bad to happen to me that summer and he, he was trying to love me. But you know, that is the heart of a child of God in love with God, saying, God, whatever it takes, take care of me, change me, use me. In 1962, Alexander Solzhenitsyn published a book entitled One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's a novel about this man who endured the horrors of the Soviet Soviet prison camps. And one day he's praying with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner notices him and says with ridicule, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. And opening his eyes... Ivan answers, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. Now, here's the point. Prayer is not manipulating God to get what we want, but discovering what God wants us to do. And then asking the Spirit of God to enable us to do His will. In other words, prayer is not a way to get what we want, but the way to become what God wants us to be. R. Kent Hughes says this, praying thy will be done involves praying for two things. First of all, we pray we will live in such a profound obedience to his will that may be the supreme desire of our lives. And secondly, we pray That our obedience will be as it is in heaven. Meaning what? Joyous. Enthusiastic. That's the kind of prayer life. That suggests God's will. Is just what Paul said to the people at Rome. In Romans 12.2. That you may prove what is that good. Acceptable and perfect. Will of God. You know, it's foolish to resist and to reject the will of a loving father. If you are like me, and you are, and you have lived to see one of your children go their own way, I'm sure you've cried, and on your more sober moments, you've laughed and thought, how foolish. You know I love you. Why would you do this? And you know, that's a picture of you and I in relationship to a God who loves us with an infinite love. However, in order to do God's will, we must first know God's will. So praying for God's will to be done involves a corresponding pursuit of discovering God's will. And this is going to entail the study of the word of God. Dear friend, you're never, I'm never going to know the will of God apart from the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why the theme of my church in Singapore all those years. That's why the the words were splashed all over our van, our church van in Singapore. Hearing God's voice through God's word. That's the theme of my life. Knowing God from my own personal relationship with the word of God. Let me draw this to a close. The message I've shared with you in Sunday School this morning reminds me of the words to the song, All I Ever Want to Be. Some of the lyrics I've put on the screen, it goes like this. All I ever want to be is what you want of me, Lord. I give my life to you. And all my hopes and dreams and plans I place within your hands, Lord, and give my life to you. Only those whose will is bound to the will of God will be what God wants them to be. And it's our greatest glory to pray that prayer. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, I just time and time again cannot get over the depth of truth you enclosed within this pattern to pray. It touches every fabric of our life. We live on earth. You gave us in a nutshell a roadmap for living the Christian life. Thank you. Help us to stay on the path of doing thy will in earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.